This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Dave Goulson. Dave is a professor of biology at the University of Sussex in the UK. He joined me to discuss his latest book, Silent Earth, Averting the Insect Apocalypse. We talk about how insects have been misunderstood, the vital contributions they make to our ecosystem and our lives, as well as the concerning research detailing insect decline. Dave shares the reasons behind these numbers, as well as what can be done to prevent an insect apocalypse. And I've got to say, it is a true and absolute pleasure to welcome onto the program Dave Goulson. Dave has studied biology for many, many years at Oxford University and is now Professor of Biological Sciences at the University of Sussex in the United Kingdom. Throughout his career, he's been very much uh, interested in the study of insects, in particular in the last 20 years, studying bumblebees. And in that work has published over 250 scientific articles on their biology. Interestingly, on a similar theme, Dave founded the Bumblebee Conservation Trust in 2006, and he's also the author of many books, including A Sting in the Tail, which was shortlisted for the 2013 Samuel Johnson Prize, and also he's the author of A Buzz in the Meadow and Bee Quest. Today, we are going to be talking about his latest book, Silent Earth, Averting the Insect Apocalypse, which has been released through Penguin Books. And uh, without further ado, I welcome onto the program Dave Goulson. Hi there, Dave. Thank you very much for joining me today. Hi, Amy. It's an absolute pleasure. Oh, it's uh, really great to chat with you. I was um, so struck by the title of your book and the cover. It's an issue that we here in Australia have certainly been thinking about. Um, Not everyone, of course, but environmentally minded people have been thinking about for a little while. And there's been a few insects here in Australia that I think have been at the front of our consciousness year on year thinking, where are they? You know, I used to see them all the time, you know, when I was a kid. The most obvious one to many people is the Christmas beetle, which is this beautiful metallic beetle of different colours. And you just see them around. And I think it was kind of a joy of many people's childhoods. So to, as an adult, barely ever see them is quite a shock to many here. There are many other examples that I'd love to bring up a bit later. But I wonder... What were some of the insects that caught your imagination as a child that you still think of today and are they still present and around? Yeah, I guess I was first drawn to to butterflies and moths because they tend to be, some of them at least, very colourful and beautiful. And I think actually that for many people, that's where, where if they're interested in insects, that's where it starts. Um, And when I was only... I think about six years old, one of my kind of earliest memories is of, of searching for caterpillars. I found these little yellow and black stripy caterpillars um, on the edge of the school playground on some weeds. And I put them in my lunchbox and took them home and reared them up. And they eventually turned into these beautiful scarlet and black moths called cinnabar moths. And it seemed like kind of magic to me. And I, w- I was hooked. So I I started collecting butterflies. I'm slightly embarrassed to say that now because, it, you know, one wouldn't encourage that kind of thing. But in the 1970s, that was a common hobby. And I just became kind of obsessed and never really grew out of it, I, I think. I mean, it, it was many years later that I switched to studying bumblebees I, when I actually realized that butterflies are quite kind of airheaded, simple creatures. They're beautiful, but they don't do anything terrible. No, it's not quite fair, but they're their life cycles tend to be quite simple, whereas bees are really clever and do all sorts of um, really intricate and interesting uh, behaviours. So I kind of switched allegiance later on in life, but I I love them all really. It's interesting you mentioned that because it was only maybe a month ago I was observing a butterfly in my backyard and watching it fly between different flowers. And I was trying to see if I could pick any kind of pattern of what was going on. And to be honest, I couldn't (laughs) at all. But the one thing I did notice was that there was a magpie nearby and the butterfly definitely was aware of that because I think as soon as it saw it, it just went straight away back around the house and very far from where I was. Yeah, I mean, insects are the favourite food of an awful lot of larger creatures. So they spend their whole life kind of in peril and 
Uh, that said, you know, as you as you observed, they're pretty good at uh, uh, avoiding being eaten, but nonetheless, many of them do end up in the stomach of magpies and other birds. One thing I wanted to address up front was bumblebees, because I know they're, you know, obviously a central part of life in the United Kingdom, but obviously in Australia, bumblebees aren't part of life here, except in Tasmania. And here with honeybees and native bees, the beekeepers here are very, very careful to look out for bumblebees, to report them to the nearest pest management authorities, because we're worried about getting them to come here. So I guess when I was reading through your book about these, you know, lovely bumblebees, I had this thing in the back of my head going, no, but aren't they really bad? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess everything in its place, you know. Yeah. I mean, I, I've been to Tasmania and uh, studied the, the, the bumblebees there, which, which are from Europe, um, buff-tailed bumblebees, we call them. And there are issues, you know, they are an invasive species in, in the Southern Hemisphere. Um, but obviously, it's very different in their native range, um, where they, they've been for millions of years and they're important pollinators of lots of our wildflowers and so on. So I, I guess it's just one of the many things that we silly humans have messed up in the world, you know, redistributing creatures, uh, ra- sometimes rather randomly or without much thought as to what the consequences might be. Um, and of course, in, in non-native species, they can compete with native species and, and there are I don't actually know off the top of my head how many species of bee there are in Australia, but there are 25,000 species of bee in the world. And I'd be surprised if you haven't got at least a thousand in Australia. Um, and, you know, so, so if bumblebees were to make it to the mainland, they would certainly compete with some of those. And there are also risks associated with diseases that can be carried by non-native species. So the same bumblebee that you have in Tasmania, the bufftail, was introduced to Chile in 1998, um, again, thousands of miles outside of its native range. And it's spreading across South America. And unfortunately, it's wiping out the native bumblebees, which occur in the Andes, because it's carrying a disease, a European disease, which they have no resistance to. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we, sh- we should be a lot more careful, basically. We have really, and of course, Australia and New Zealand are the classic examples of many of the, the, the worst uh, impacts of, of non-native creatures, you know, there's so many examples, cane toads, rabbits, foxes, and so on and so on, um, which have, have had devastating impacts on native wildlife. People don't tend to think of bees in the same context, but at, in the wrong place, they can be just as harmful as anything else. Yeah, I wonder, when you were thinking about and deciding what kind of insects you wanted to study in depth as a scientist, what was it about bumblebees in particular that that made you dedicate so much of your time to them? It, it was just chance, really. Um, I'd got an academic position at Southampton University. Uh, this was in the early 90s. And uh, my plan was to continue studying butterflies, which until that point had been my real focus. But I, I was struggling to get any grants it's to get funding for research and build a research programme. Uh, and while I was floundering around failing to get funded by anybody, one day I was in a in a meadow and idly watching some bees visiting flowers, bumblebees. And I, I noticed something odd, which was that if you watch, and you can see this with most species of bee, including honeybees in Australia, if you watch a bee in a patch of flowers, uh, she flies from flower to flower, but she'll often fly up to a flower and at the last second will will veer away as if there's something wrong with it. Um, so she doesn't touch it, she doesn't land on it. And I saw bumblebees doing this and I thought, well, you know, what, I wonder what they're doing, why they don't like certain flowers, what's wrong with them? And so I, I basically spent five years trying to unravel that. I had a, managed to get a PhD student, Jane Stout, and between us. It turns out that basically what they do is they sniff the flower before they land and they're sniffing it for the faint whiff of a smelly bee footprint on the on the petal. So every time a bee actually lands on a flower, uh, she accidentally leaves a little smear of, of oily hydrocarbons from her cuticle, just like we leave a fingerprint on a glass, not deliberately, of course. Um, and that's a, a kind of clue that the flower will probably be empty, because if a bee's recently visited it, it will have taken the nectar and the pollen. Um, so they just save themselves time. And I thought that was really clever, essentially. And by the, after five years of studying that, I was kind of hooked and got really into 
trying to understand more about their their behaviour. Well, as you say, they are truly the brains of the insect world. They have that uh, amazing concept of the superorganism and how they're all working together. And it's something that I know captures the imaginations of many people. But, you know, it's interesting when you take us through the evolution of insects in the book, which I was very interested in, given that we don't often talk about where they've come from. You say that they were essentially dominating the earth for quite a long time, that they were one of the few, at least in the air. Yeah. uh, So, I mean, actually, since I wrote Silent Earth, I think the date of the origin of insects has been pushed back a little by scientists. So, So the best estimate now is that insects first appeared on Earth about 480 million years ago, which is just a mind-boggling number that doesn't really mean much to, to most people. But it's long, long before dinosaurs or pretty much anything else came out of the sea onto land. And they basically have dominated, they, they speciated to what we know of now, um, about 1.1 million species of insect, which is more than two-thirds of all species of animal and plant that we know of on the planet. And it's estimated that there might be another four or five million um, that we haven't even named yet, which is kind of pretty mind-boggling too. So yeah, they—I mean—they are the most successful group of organisms on on the planet. Um, they were the first creatures, probably, to sing, to chirp, to buzz, to make no- noises on our planet, apart from the wind and the waves. And they were the first creatures to fly. They took to the air about 380 million years ago. And they had the skies to themselves for, I think, about 160 million years, which is an awful long time. And there were these giant oxygen concentrations. And the early Earth were much higher than they are today, which let insects grow bigger than they do today. So there were dragonfly-like creatures with a wingspan of about 80 centimeters soaring through the skies, which must have been an amazing sight. And it wasn't until pterosaurs the pterodactyls came along that they had any any company in the air or anything to be worried about i guess and and right through to today they are there are still way more insect species and individuals than than anything else and even i mean just take ants for example as one relatively small group of insects they outnumber humans by about a million to one Um, so there's a lot more insects on the planet than there are people yeah i loved the discussion of ants it was uh, it was really mind-boggling to think about. As you point out, there are a whole range of types of ants, of course, and there's even some really interesting, was it the honey? The honeypot ant. That's right, the honeypot yeah. ant, which sounded, yeah, I've, I don't know if I've seen it in person. I don't think I have because I probably would know. Yeah, I mean, they, I, they're in the very arid regions um, in the desert, essentially, so just to explain, the honeypot ants look like normal, fairly regular ants, except some of them become kind of living food stores. They sit inside little chambers inside underground where it's cool. And they're fed nectar from flowers by the other ants. And their bodies swell and swell and swell to the point where they're, they're too heavy for the insect to move at all. And in fact, their body swells to the size of a kind of grape and becomes more or less transparent, and so it looks golden from the colour of the nectar, like like honey, essentially. And clusters of these incredibly distended ants just sit together, clinging to the roof of their little chambers underground. And they, they, they never move. Their job is simply to store the food, and if another ant is hungry and wants it, they regurgitate some for them. Um, but that's that, those stores of nectar in those ants are really valuable, so other ant nests will go on raids to steal the honeypot uh, stores of their neighbours. And, of course, the the Aboriginal people of Australia um, cottoned on very quickly to this tasty snack to be found underground and would dig them up and eat them. Um, Even David Attenborough I've seen on television eating honeypot ants. So, uh, Oh, really? Tasty snack, apparently. (laughs) Yeah, well, it is interesting uh, that that section in your book early on when you were talking about insects as food because uh, I have seen that in more and more news pieces in the last year is people even in Australia starting up companies to try and tempt consumers to eat insects and consider them as a source of protein and, and nutrients. But you point out it's it's obviously been around for a very, very long time throughout other cultures. Yeah, I mean, it's actually, it's it's an odd thing really that in kind of Western civilization, we've we've somehow 
decided that eating insects is taboo because actually the majority of the of the people of the world think it's completely normal in South America and much of Asia. Uh, it's very common, and, and lots of Africa, it's very common to eat insects. But for some reason in Europe and Australia and North America, we've, we've, we, we think it's, most people at least think they're disgusting, which doesn't make any sense because we'll happily eat a prawn, which is just a sort of, I mean, the, which is a crustacean, not an insect, but they're rather similar related groups of creatures with lots of legs and an external shell and so on. So we're very illogical. It's just, I guess, a part of our, our culture. But it, it does make sense to eat insects. They're very nutritious, basically. And rearing them for food um, is a much more efficient process than rearing uh, cows or sheep or chickens. Um, they convert plant material into stuff that we can digest that's, um, that's good for us um, much more efficiently and with less water and less space and so on. So, so uh, maybe, you know, it's, it's part of the solution to the many problems we face in the future. Yeah. And well, you also say, and as we kind of become aware of in the, the book is that there are many animals and uh, fish who are reliant on insects for their food. So, you know, it's not just humans who, who need insects in the world. Absolutely. I, I mean, actually, they're, they're a kind of critical part of the, the food web f- for most organisms. Uh, so even if, that, so there are many, many insects, uh, sorry, very, very many birds, bats, lizards, freshwater fish, amphibians all eat insects. But then there are many more that eat the things that eat the insects. So they're still dependent on them, just not quite so directly. So, uh, yeah, I mean, obviously insect declines um, have, have consequences. And one of the more obvious ones is if uh, for the creatures that depend on them for food. And obviously one of the kind of most important points that you're you're making in this book is that insects, of course, have value in and of themselves and why wouldn't we want to keep them alive and protect a living creature? But there's also other values or other functions of insects and, as we've mentioned, they can be a food source. Um, but they're also clearly crucial in the role of pollinating plants and you know as you point out there is such thing as wind pollination so if we lost all pollinators we wouldn't be without food totally but it would really limit our options yeah absolutely so the wind pollinated crops include things like wheat and barley rice maize so we'd we'd have bread we'd have porridge we'd have rice um but our diets would be severely boring and very much lacking in vitamins and minerals because most of the fruits and veg that make our diet healthy are insect pollinated rather than wind pollinated and they're the ones that disappear or or yields would be much reduced and there's a huge number you know strawberries raspberries apples blueberries tomatoes chili peppers squashes even things like coffee and chocolate depend on insect pollinators so you know, life would be pretty, imagine a, a world without coffee and chocolate alone sounds pretty terrible to me, <laughs> let alone all those lovely fruits. Um, so, uh, yeah, you know, we, there's no doubt at all that uh, we humans, whether we love or loathe insects, we need them. I, I mean, actually, I should add while I've got the chance, pollination is one of the things they do that's well recognized, but there, we shouldn't forget there's actually a whole bunch of other things they do. For example, recycling waste material like cow pats and dead bodies um, and helping to keep the soil healthy and aerated and distributing seeds and helping to control pests. Admittedly, the pests themselves are often different types of insects, so not all insects are helpful to us. But, you know, they're involved in more or less everything. And so if they were to somehow all disappear, it would be an absolute catastrophe for all of life on Earth. Yeah. We've just had autumn and it reminded me of a chat I had with um, an entomologist who was saying, you know, stop raking your leaves all the time in the garden. Just leave them there because there are a lot of insects who really need them. Yeah. Well, it's uh, one of their key roles is is breaking down those leaves and incorporating them into the soil, which releases the nutrients in those leaves for then more plants to grow the next year. So tidying those leaves away and burning them, which some people do or wasting petrol using a leaf blower to blast them around, which I've never understood, (laughs) is counterproductive, really. Leave the leaves. Um, And as as a general point, actually, being less tidy would be of great benefit to to nature. 
you know, particularly in, in gardens and urban areas, which can support a lot of wildlife, but not if they're super tidy with neat mown lawns uh, or plastic grass, worst case scenario. There's a lot of that going on in the UK these days. Um, but if you, if you grow lots of, you know, a few native wildflowers, herbs and so on, it's really easy to encourage a huge number of insects uh, to, to thrive in your back, backyard. Yes, I did notice that um, the hoverflies and the bees were really into our so-called weeds that were popping up through the grass, you know, the dandelions and that kind of thing. They were just obsessed. And so I always got upset when anyone mowed the lawn. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's the whole thing of weeds is an interesting one. I mean, it, in the UK, dandelions are a native wildflower. But they're still regarded as weeds by the very large majority of people. And I, I spend a lot of time trying to persuade people to be more tolerant of these weeds. So long as they're native plants, then, you know, ideally let them be because they, the, the, many of them are, are really important nectar resources or pollen resources for, for a whole host of insects. And dandelions in particular, actually, they flower in early spring when there aren't too many other flowers about. And for us, that's the time of year when, when bumblebee queens are coming out of hibernation and they're starving hungry. And those dandelions are a really key resource. So um, it's a bit daft, but I've, I often say to people, you know, you can get rid of all the weeds in your garden, just like just the click of your fingers by just calling them wildflowers. <laughs> it's a good idea. We'll get to um, pesticides and, and a whole range of chemicals a bit later on in the the program, but I wanted to pick up on one of the examples you brought up just a bit earlier, which was, well, you were broadly referencing dung beetles because there's a, an excellent example you give in the book that is based in Australia. And it was mind blowing to me to think that we could be surrounded by cow poo right now if we didn't have <laughs> a whole range of dung beetles. Yeah, it's it's a really amazing story. Um, so to, to, to cut it reasonably short, there are lots of dung beetles native to Australia, but they evolved to deal with marsupial dung, which is really dry, uh, and they were completely incapable of dealing with, with the sloppy dung of, of cows when cows were introduced by us Europeans. And so, and these poor Australian dung beetles would literally drown if they tried to, to deal with, with cow pats. Um, so the cow pats were just accumulating and ended up covering vast areas of pasture. So the grass couldn't grow through because it was just covered in a, in a, in a layer of, of cow dung, which sparked scientists to start looking, looking for dung beetles to import to Australia that could deal with, with the, the cow poo. And it's a rare example of where importing non-native species to Australia actually really was, did a positive thing um, because they, they found some suitable dung beetles from uh, South Africa where the climate is, is approximately similar. So they were able to, to thrive in Australian conditions, but they could deal with the, the sloppy poo of cows. And in no time at all, all the dung was, was neatly buried underground. All those lovely nutrients were being released. The grass was growing and the farmers were happy. So it just goes to show that, you know, we'd always taken those dung beetles for granted in Europe and the rest of the world. Uh, nobody really thought that they were doing anything important. But actually, when you try surviving without them and farming without them, you find it doesn't work. Um, so it's a really nice illustration of, of our dependence on the most unlikely of creatures. Mm. And to give people a, an idea of the scale, I loved um, your you know, pointing out of the statistics that with each cow producing about a dozen pats per day, by the 1950s, the area of Australia covered by cow pats was estimated to be increasing by 2,000 square kilometres per year. And, you know, although Australia is a large continent, it does sound like it was a bit of an issue. Yeah, that's a lot of cow poo, isn't it? That's a lot. Yeah, yeah. You do quote E.O. Wilson, the um, American biologist, quite a lot in this book, and no doubt it makes a lot of sense. He has some really great things to say about uh, insects and the environment. And, you know, one which is really striking is that, uh, quote, if all mankind were to disappear, the world would regenerate back to the rich state of equilibrium that existed 10,000 years ago. If insects were to vanish, the environment would collapse into chaos. I think that many people would never really think of those consequences, would we? Like that insects were that critical to our world. Absolutely. I think we've, we've 
largely ignore them. Most people are almost entirely ignorant of the world of insects. I think most adults are frightened of insects. We hate to see them in our houses. If anything buzzes near us, most people flap around trying to kill it because they're, they're frightened. They think it's going to sting them. So most people just don't really like insects, I think is the, the horrible truth. I find it terribly depressing and, and I don't understand it. But anyway. It's a tough PR problem for you, isn't it? It, it is. They're not an easy sell apart from some, you know, butterflies, easy enough. But most insects are, are not so glamorous. And so I, I think, you know, I, I, it's really important to try and get across that, uh, that they do do an incredible number of vital things. You know, we, even if you live in the middle of a city, you, you never go out into the countryside. You still get your food from, a, from a, a shop and that came from a farm where insects were busy keeping that ecosystem functioning. Um, so wherever you live, whatever you do, you still depend upon insects, whether you like it or, or appreciate it or not. And I, I, I wish more people understood that. Yeah, there was an Australian interviewer <laughs> asking you, <laughs> you know, isn't that a good thing if insects are disappearing? Yeah, yeah, that was a strange experience. To be fair, I, I, it was difficult because I couldn't see his face. It was just on a telephone interview. We do have a weird sense of humour. I think he was probably smiling and mm-hmm. it was just a kind of provocative uh, way to start the interview. <laughs> But it was, uh, as I explained in the book, at the time I was standing in a toilet, so it was because uh, it was the only quiet place I could find. So it was, it was a slightly odd interview altogether, really. Yeah, I've seen a lot of cockroaches around recently, probably trying to escape the rain or something. They just seem to be around, but that they're probably the only one that I'm a little irked by is, is cockroaches. Yeah, I, I mean, of course there are insects that that, that spread disease are almost universally loathed and I'm, I'm afraid cockroaches and perhaps houseflies, mosquitoes uh, might be included in that list. Actually, I mean, cockroaches are amazing little creatures if you get to know them. I have for many years kept um, Madagascan hissing cockroaches as pets, which are very big but rather slow-moving insects, obviously from Madagascar. They live in the rainforest there and they're really sweet. Um, and once you get to like those, it's actually you start to realise that cockroaches aren't so bad. But Do they hiss at each other? Is that where the name comes from? They don't hiss at each other usually, but if, if they're, they're threatened, if they think something's trying to eat them, they, they hiss. They're completely harmless. They have yeah. no, um, no real defence, but they, all they're doing is squeezing air out of their little breathing holes, their spiracles along their side. And it just makes this odd sort of kind of noise. I don't know if you could pick that up, but uh, yeah. Um, presumably it deters a few timid potential predators. Anyway, they're right. I, even cockroaches <laughs> have their charm when you get to know them. I'm sure they do. I haven't really got to know them, so that's probably why I don't really like them as much. Um, but I have got to know a few others. Hoverflies are my kind of obsession at the moment. I saw one of them in summer and it was just, I looked up above my head, which I rarely ever do. I think I was trying to look up a tree and there was a hoverfly right above my head, just hovering there for what felt like at least a minute, just sitting there, like hovering. They are master flyers. I mean, they, they, yeah. I mean, actually flies as a, as a, as a group more broadly um, are arguably the, the, the most accomplished flyers on the planet they can they can they can hover a stationary they can fly backwards they can even fly upside down if they choose to well they don't do it terribly often but they can um they really are you know um extremely skilled uh, at flying well i want to move into some obviously the key kind of crux of the book which is this idea that there is a kind of significant amount of insect decline there are patterns that seem to have been emerging in the science that show insect decline in different populations and you know you point out some of the difficulties in assessing this because as you've already mentioned there are a huge number of insects that haven't even been named you know identified they're not part of the taxonomy of insects yet which is obviously a shame because if we don't know that they exist then how do we know if we've lost them so that's clearly, you know, one problem. And then the other is you point out that even the ones we do know that are named, a lot of them are just kind of sitting in a museum, pins stuck through them, and we don't really have much more knowledge of them. It's absolutely true. There are, there are so many species of insect. I, I mentioned earlier more than a million known species and millions that are estimated to exist that are unknown. And they just aren't the 
the insect enthusiasts in the world to, to keep tabs on them all, or even a, actually more than a tiny fraction of them. The long-term insect population data we have is incredibly patchy and is really focused mainly in, in Europe and North America. Uh, sorry, guys, but uh, not a lot going on in Australia yet. And it tends to be very focused on butterflies and, and a few other groups of big, relatively easy to identify um, insects. Uh, so for actually, e even in Great Britain, which is probably the, the most studied corner of the world in, in, with regard to insects, I would guess, we still ha we have no data at all on, on probably 95% of our insect species. And in most of the world, I mean, for entire continents like Africa and South America, we have no data at all for any insects. So it's really difficult to, to, to make any sweeping generalizations about what's going on. But the data we do have, the long-term studies that, that have been done, almost all show really quite pronounced declines. Um, so it's the, the, the evidence we have is very worrying. Um, one of the, the more famous studies, in fact, the one that triggered that Australian interview that we were talking about five minutes ago, it was, it was a study came from Germany, uh, and that found a 76% decline in insect biomass, the weight of in flying insects, between 1989 and 2016, so there's 27 years. So seemingly three quarters of the insects in Germany went in a quarter of a century, which is pretty terrifying if, if that is a general phenomenon. Um, and the, the best evidence we have suggests that it is, unfortunately. Well, you do take us through a lot of those longer-term studies, and obviously you point out some of their deficits, which sometimes are avoidable and other times not avoidable, you know, things that are a challenge for any scientist to really deal with. And you also, you know, show that there are some types of um, studies where I believe you were looking at the distribution of insects um, and trying to figure out whether that had changed and see if you could infer meaning from that. Yeah, so for, for many insects in Europe, we, we don't have any kind of population data. No one's been counting them in a rigorous way. But we, we do have lots of records, so you can plot maps and you can look how the distribution has changed between... Uh, let's say the first half of the 20th century and and more more recently and that tends to reveal that that the ranges have contracted um so for example in the uk our wild bee species on on average have lost about 30% of their geographic range since 1990 so the last 30 years um and so they, those if the, if the range is contracting, if they're disappearing from places they used to occur, they're not. it's pretty obvious that they've declined. But we don't know exactly how much they've declined by. But it all points in the same direction, rather rather sadly. Mm. I, I guess one of the really poignant things here is, uh, which you touched on a second ago, which is that we are almost certainly losing creatures to extinction that we that we've never discovered and we will never know they existed and i i find that i don't know why really but it seems really sad that there are organisms and it's currently estimated that extinction rates are running at, at very very crude crudely about one species per hour somewhere on the planet is being lost and because insects make up the majority of species the chances are the species that goes extinct while we're having this conversation will be an insect somewhere, but probably an insect that we haven't yet named. So we'll never really know. Um, and who knows what amazing creatures are disappearing right now. Um, and we'll, you know, none of us will ever know what they were. I feel like I'm very aware of that in the sense that we're always reminded here in Australia that we're mega diverse. And so, you know, we're just so lucky to have access to a whole range of species that other people don't have around the world. So you can only feel that more acutely, I think, when we have such terrible bushfires, for example, and you kind of imagine all of those um, species that we might be losing potentially through, you know, these major kind of catastrophic events caused by climate change. Yeah. And, and those catastrophic events are, are, are coming on the back of decades of other problems that we've created by chopping down forests and using pesticides and uh, all the other things we do. So insect populations, wildlife populations more generally, were already much reduced. And 
now they're suddenly on top of everything else having to deal with fires, floods, droughts, uh, heat waves, and so on, which unfortunately may be the final straw for some of them. And one thing that was particularly, you know, interesting to me is the the scientific debate that's going on in the community of entomologists and other biologists, because, you know, there is the the one side, which I think is, you know, what you might represent, which is saying that, well, yes, some of these studies might have shortcomings, but the patterns are kind of undeniable. It's showing a strong trend in every single one of the studies, bar a few, and there are reasons why they're not you know, that way. It might have been that, um, you know, the land had been rehabilitated and so insects started to flourish again. Mm. Then there's this other side, which kind of reminds me of the climate change debate where it's saying, oh, don't be too alarmist and, you know, calm down a bit. Um, We need to just do more science and count them better and get more understanding and then we can figure it out. But to me, I guess I'm wondering, isn't that going to be too late? And aren't the consequences going to be worse if we just wait around for more science? Yeah, I 100% agree with you. We haven't got time to wait. And I think the evidence is overwhelming, although it's far from perfect. It will never be perfect. And if you want to follow that line of reasoning, we must wait until we know everything before we do anything. Well, we'll be waiting forever. um, And then it really will be too late. I do find it frustrating. And and of course, part of the issue is there are vested interests in continuing the status quo there's a huge industry associated with industrialized farming and all the pesticides associated with that, which are a powerful lobby, uh, and they they try to influence science. They publish their own science, which suggests that things are, are, are just fine. There are some real obvious parallels with what the tobacco industry did in the 20th century, trying to basically claim doubt, to claim uncertainty, cause confusion, blow smoke clouds. Um, you know, there's a, there's a book, Merchants of Doubt, which describes all this in great detail, but basically making it okay for politicians to delay action because it seems as if there's no clear scientific consensus. But actually, there is a clear scientific consensus. There was as to smoking causing harm to humans, and there is today that insects and biodiversity generally is collapsing. Um, and we really, really do need to, to do something about it urgently. Yeah, I wanted to quote one of the very many statistics that you have in the book, and I hope people read the book so they can get a full grasp of all the the amazing science that you do distill for us. But this is the kind of top level stats that you were giving us. You were saying that we can't be sure, but if one looks at the various studies from Europe over various time periods and focused on different insect groups, it seems likely that we have lost at least 50% or more of our insects since 1970. It could easily be as high as 90%, and declines over the last 100 years are very likely to be much greater. So, you know, that's pretty big. This is a a massive problem. It's not some kind of small part of the biodiversity crisis. This is a a huge chunk. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the the sort of interesting things, but scary things, is that the 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 data we do have doesn't go back very far, really. I mean, the, the the oldest insect monitoring data set we have is for butterflies in the UK, and it doesn't. That starts in 1976. Well. You know, Silent Spring was written by Rachel Carson in 1962, almost 60 years ago to the day. We know that insect declines almost certainly started decades before 1976. So the declines we're measured are probably just the tail end of of much larger declines. We'll never know for sure unless someone invents a time machine. But uh, um, it seems extremely likely that we've lost a very large proportion of, of, of our insects already. Um, and, and, you know, clearly that can't carry on. And land clearing you've referenced there is a clear issue, one of the major issues, and it is for so many of the problems we have here in Australia, um, some of our states being the most land clearing places on the developed planet. Um, so it's a, a certainly a, a something very close to home here. And you talk about the fact that only 6.2 million square kilometres remain of the 16 million uh, square kilometres of forest that once clothed the earth. So this is, um, as we've already pointed out, a major a major problem for insects as well as for other uh, birds, mammals, 
and other creatures. But there are obviously a whole range of other causes of insect decline. And as you point out, there isn't one that's the main factor. And obviously they all compound as well, depending on what's most relevant for each um, insect species. But I wondered, you know, could you take us through which you think are some of the most important causes that you've been observing and, and looking at yourself? So I, th- I think still the biggest one, as you say, is habitat loss, destruction of, of really biodiverse habitats like tropical forests and their replacement with crops, monocultures of, of soybean or whatever. And I, I must say, seeing as, I, seeing as I'm talking to an Australian organisation, it's really sad to me that Australia, you know, it's easier to forgive a developing country for destroying rainforests because they're poor, they, they need the resources, perhaps. Um, but Australia doesn't need to chop down its tropical forests. You, and you are incredibly lucky to have inherited a continent with amazing biodiversity and you should look after it and sorry not you personally no no but. I know I spend my life talking about it on this show and, and rallying against it it's so frustrating to see you know a country that doesn't have to do it um, still continuing down this route it's absolute madness anyway so habitat loss is probably number one um, but it kind of it's impossible to separate that from the sort of industrialization of agriculture, which is so land used for food production has become progressively more hostile to wildlife over time, particularly since the 1940s when pesticides became cheaply available to farmers to use. And today we have a, a bewildering array of pesticides going onto the land in huge quantities and fields being sprayed 10, 15, 20 times a year with poison, basically. Um, so farming a hundred years ago uh, actually supported quite a bit of wildlife, whereas farming today supports extremely little. Those are sort of two intertwined kind of factors. But then there's a whole bunch of other problems. Invasive species are having big impacts in some regions. Uh, climate change is really starting to kick in. It probably hasn't devastated too many insects yet, but um, if we reach plus two degrees, that will be catastrophic for, for many insects. Light pollution is another one which is much less well appreciated, but that really has causes issues for nocturnal insects and messes up the, the life cycles of insects because they, they, it basically can fool them into thinking it's spring when actually it's winter because they use day length as their judge of when it's time to emerge from hibernation. And so artificial lights can cause real problems. And so on and so on. Um, there are others too that I talk about in the book that are having playing a role. And it's really this combination of factors. You know, insects are pretty adaptable on the whole. Um, they can cope with, with quite a lot and have managed to survive for nearly half a billion years. But if you bombard them in a very short space of time from all sides with all of these different problems, then, you know, it's just, it's just not possible for them to adapt quickly enough. Yeah, I really did appreciate your your section on light called Bauble Earth, where you said it's estimated that the amount of light we are casting at night increases every year by between 2 and 6%. That has been obvious to me here in Australia, not only in urban areas, but also outside in regional areas as well. And, you know, we have that idea, well, of course, moths are attracted to the light we have on in our houses, you know, and I can see them bashing up against the the windows wanting to come in. And you talk about the theories about why insects are attracted to our artificial light and perhaps that's the role of the moon, which was really interesting to me as well. So yeah, there's so many things I think we're not considering. There's the obvious suspects like pesticides, um, but then, you know, light, which I think many people think is such a benign thing. Oh, I'll just leave the porch light on or have my lights on at night. You know, it's something that is so easy to change. You even see office blocks lit up all night, which I've never understood what earthly purpose that serves. Yeah. I think it's such a waste of energy waste of money aside from the impact it has on on wildlife and yeah i mean i can't help but suspect there are probably other factors driving insect declines that we haven't even discovered yet you know the world has changed so fast in the last hundred years last 50 years it may well be that there are other factors perhaps other chemicals that we manufacture 
Um, uh, who knows? Uh, maybe we'll we'll never discover them. But I I I think there are very likely to be um, stories that we can't yet tell because we don't know what's happening. I wanted to pick up on one of the areas you've done a lot of research and writing about, and you do focus a lot of the attention in the book on it, and that was looking at pesticides and chemicals overall, artificial chemicals. In particular, is I'm going to probably pronounce this wrong, but is it neon nicotinoids? Yeah, that's pretty good. Uh, it's a new, it's a relatively new word, so you can pronounce it however you like. I think that's good. <laughs> I was really interested in how there was this research into it. The EU started to ban it initially on those flowering crops, and then realised no, that's not enough. We need to ban it across pretty much all crops, with some few exceptions and special considerations. But when I Googled here in Australia, do we use this group of chemicals? It basically said yes, and it didn't appear that we had any real regulation around them. You, you don't. Um, the pesticide regulation in Australia is is less strict than it is in Europe. Um, and I should say, actually, Europe is the only uh, major region of the earth that has taken steps to ban these neonicotinoids. I think the evidence is pretty clear. I mean, they're basically neurotoxins that uh, kill insects in really, really tiny doses. And they're quite persistent in the environment. They get into nectar and pollen of wildflowers. They contaminate the soil, streams, rivers. Um, it's, it's, it's not completely dissimilar to the DDT story. And yet, most of the world still allows them to be used uh, freely by farmers, um, which is pretty terrifying. And it's not even just deaths, as you point out. The sublethal effects are very significant, and you point out those effects on bees. Yeah, so the regulatory system, such as it is for testing pesticides around the world, usually focuses really on, on lethal effects. So you, you get a bee, you give it a dose of pesticide, and then after 48 hours, you assess whether it's alive or dead. And if it's alive, it's okay, all is good. But actually, it may not be able to fly, it may not be able to navigate, its Im immune system might be damaged. There can be all sorts of potentially lethal in the long-term effects. Or, or at least extremely damaging. For example, if a, if a honeybee or a bumblebee can no longer navigate because it's confused, it's dazed, it's, it's been exposed to a neurotoxin, then it's useless to its hive because it can't go and collect food. So there are all sorts of much more subtle effects that we're only just beginning to realize um, are caused by pesticides of one type or another. And you point out that these newer chemicals and pesticides, insecticides, can be up to a thousand times more toxic than things like those old school chemicals like DDT. Yeah, I mean, actually, seven thousand times more. Um, the, the commonly used neonicotinoids are to to a an insect seven thousand times more poisonous than DDT was. Wow! Um, so it it takes four billionths of a gram um, of one of these chemicals to kill a honeybee, uh, mm. which you can't can't really imagine. But it's a it means that one teaspoon is enough to kill one and a quarter billion honeybees. Um, so we're, we're dealing with really potent stuff and we apply tons of them, literally tons of them, to the landscape and then we wonder why our insects are in decline. Yeah. Um, I wanted to cover off on what the um, solutions are so we don't make people depressed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The good news is actually that a lot of this is fairly easily solved. Um, uh, you know, lots of environmental issues do feel rather doom and gloom and people feel powerless. But insects, they live all around us. They live in gardens and parks and and most of them haven't gone extinct. And their populations can recover really quickly. You know, they breed much faster than pandas or koalas, given half a chance. Uh, so they could spring back. We just need to, to you know, ease the pressures on them. And if you've got a, got a garden, you can play a, a really important role by making that more insect friendly. Don't use pesticides. Grow native plants so far as possible. Don't be too tidy. It's amazing. I mean, you can have literally thousands of species of insect living in a single small urban garden. So we can all play a part. And my kind of slightly crazy dream is, is of our urban areas becoming kind of giant nature reserves for insects where people can grow up seeing all these lovely creatures in their garden and not turn into people who are frightened of insects by the time they're adults because they're familiar to them. Mm. 
I, it, it's maybe a bit optimistic of me to, to dream of this, but but it is kind of already happening. I mean, certainly in Europe, there's a huge growth of interest in wildlife gardening, sometimes called rewilding of gardens, which I think is really cool. And if we could also get councils on board so that the road verges, the roundabouts, the parks, the cemeteries and so on were all being managed in a kind of benign, wildlife-friendly way, then that would really help. Of course, farming and habitat loss isn't tackled directly by that. Um, but you can also try and steer farming in a more insect-friendly direction by buying organic food, buying local sustainably produced foods, eating seasonal food, eating less meat. Um, this is you know, not directly linked to insects, but it all reduces our impact on the planet and leaves more space for, for other life to flourish. So we, we can all play our part and if enough people do, it really would make a difference. Yeah. Well, I just wanted to talk about the people power point that you make because it is quite powerful, the fact that things have changed at the local council level in many countries because of individuals pushing their councils. Things have changed in Canada, in France, in other countries. And you've also said, you know, there's a power around petitions and lobbying your parliamentarians. Do you feel heartened by that as well? I know you say you've become a bit, a little bit cynical about the responses of some politicians. Yeah, I mean, on the one hand, it's it's nice to see all these sort of campaigning websites and petitions being launched, and and it it, it does help rally people together and and draw politicians' uh, attention to, to these issues and hopefully make them realise how many people care about them, which must all help. But the flip side, I guess, is there's a danger that we think that, you know, if we get 10,000 signatures on a petition, that that's actually achieved something. And unless, but of course, unless that petition is translated into some real action, it doesn't achieve anything at all. And there are so many petitions. I, I, probably get asked to sign at least one petition every day mm. and I think some people mistakenly think that all we need to do is sign enough petitions and, and we'll save the planet and actually we'll achieve absolutely nothing if that's all we do so uh, yeah anyway more broadly I mean it is heartening to see there is a wave of interest in looking after the planet better than we have and particularly amongst young people um, and so I do think there is some reason to be very cautiously optimistic that it's not quite too late yet yeah, And there is hope that we humans can learn to tread a little more gently on our planet. Fingers crossed, eh? Yeah, as you point out, you're writing these books for a reason, and that's to increase public awareness. So I hope people can check out your book, Silent Earth, Averting the Insect Apocalypse. It is by yourself, Dave Goulson, and out through Penguin Books here in Australia. Thank you so much, Dave, for taking the time to chat with us today. I really appreciate it. It's been great fun. I'll happily come back when I get around to writing another book. Yeah, please. I'm Amy Mullins and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.